Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When the Hollywood strikes got started, many people were worried that their favorite TV shows and movies would be postponed or canceled. But what about the folks who portray the characters that we know and love? Last week, the Writers Guild came to an agreement with the studios ending their strike. But the Screen Actors Guild is still holding out. The epicenter may be in Los Angeles, but the shockwave of a strike can be felt all the way throughout the entire industry, even here in Nashville. So. How have Nashville-based actors been doing during this stoppage of work? What are the impacts to the future of TV and film production in our region? My next guest has some answers and can give us a glimpse of what it's like to be an actor in today's entertainment industry. I'd like to welcome Carla Cristina Contreras, the new president of SAG-AFTRA Local, to This Is Nashville. Carla Cristina, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, which means us, as the SAG After Nashville local. Well, it is our pleasure. Look, we all love TV and movies, and it's you all who help make that happen. So it's a pleasure to have you here. I, you know, I want to start off, I want to talk about your early life a little bit. You're born in California, Torrance, right? Mm-hmm. Your parents worked in the entertainment business. Yes. What did your folks do? My mother uh, moved from Chicago uh, as a single mom to Los Angeles. And what I knew about her was that she was a professional singer. Mm-hmm. She met my father um, shortly after that. I think it was a couple of years. They got married and she told me that she was given a choice. Um, this marriage, building a family or your career. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the thing back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't even imagine someone saying that to me today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so she was a professional singer. But what's really cool, when I was in Los Angeles, I got to meet up, because my mother is no longer on the planet. Um, I got to meet up with one of her best friends. And she told me my mother came to be an actress. My my mother never told me that. And she said, oh, yes, your mother was here to be an actress. And to think that she lived vicariously through you as Mm. an actress. My father, on the other hand, uh, I'm still doing the historical research on it. We've done a little bit. He was one of the first, if not the first, Hispanic grip in Hollywood. Wow. Yes. And in the olden days, back in the 60s, the way to get into the union was they had to write a letter for you. So there was a man named Tom May who has also passed. My father has passed. And my father was in the the union for 50 years. Tom May wrote the letter for him. And then my father wrote the letter for his brother. Okay. Alfonso Contreras, okay. so Armando Contreras, and thank you for pronouncing my name so beautifully. Oh, well, uh, my, my, my pleasure. You're yes, welcome. So, so my father started out as a grip, but then he, and he was in the business about 50 years actively until mom got sick and then he became her caregiver. You, mm-hmm. Everyone knows the story. And, and then 
he advanced himself consistently. He was a crab dolly, a dolly grip, a best boy, a key grip. So when he retired, he had done quite a bit of key grip work. Okay. And I will tell you through his IMDb page that I manage, I get um, emails from cinematographers asking about setup, particular things that he did in, wow. in cinema. So your father had a real big impact yes. on you know the look. Because for people who don't understand, the key grip helps with setting up the lighting, working with the director of well, photography. Well, that's the gaffer, yes. yes. They work along with the gaffer. But my father would always say, the, the gaffers put the light in and we take the light away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you jumped into the industry at an early age. I understand that you appeared in the classic TV show, The Waltons. Yes. How did you land that gig? My father was key grip okay. on The Waltons. It was Lorimar Productions. It was on the back lot of Warner Brothers where the the facade of the house was. And um, he told me it was his idea to ask if crew kids could come and be a part of the community and the school and church. Mm-hmm. And I was 11 and a well, I was just a little over 11 years old because it was the pilot. He was there for the from the beginning of that show as the key grip. And um, so, yeah, he takes credit for that. And so that's how I got in to doing the Waltons. What's it like? I mean, you grew up on the soundstage, on set, and backstage at performances. What's it like to grow up in those settings? It's a really different point of view because everything, because you get to see what's what looks real mm-hmm. but isn't real. So it's really funny when we watch movies at home when I was living at home, no, no one said a word. Mm-hmm. Like we watched the credits roll. Okay. And if you spoke... During anything that we were watching, or my father would just turn and give you the look, like, because we're concentrating on this. Mm-hmm. And so um, I used to be a professional photographer as a side job, and my training is cinematography. You know, I've I spent so much time on sets, sitting next to Academy Award-winning DPs, directors of photography, um, Academy Award-winning actors, uh, it, and I realized that that was my master class. Mm. And I didn't even know it was happening at the time. But I, I consider myself really, really lucky. Um, it was just, it was really different being raised by a crew person because, you know, the pecking order's pretty, yeah. you know, it's a pyramid. Yeah, And so crew kids... We're nepotistic. We're I'm a nepo, I guess you would say. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, you know, my dad wasn't famous. He was famous when we'd walk around the lot, okay. Because other crew people would literally like put their arms up and bow and say, "Armando, how are you?" So it was. It, I was very proud of him. Yeah, you should be. Yeah. You should be pretty proud. Now you graduate high school and you attend college. Did you have plans to return to? The entertainment business. Uh, I would say no, but it was, uh, it was, uh, boy, that's a, no, because I was a people pleaser. Mm. 
And my parents really wanted me to, you know, I was really academically, I was good. Yeah. I, I had good grades. I accomplished. And I, I succeeded at things that I set forth to do. And my father wanted me to be a taxation lawyer. Um, I'm a <laughs> numbers exciting. girl. My degree's in finance. Uh, yeah, really? And you're an actor. Well, yeah, actors do a lot more um, than just act. So what, what brought you back into the business? Um, well, it was, I graduated. I was working with my um, husband's company and I just kind of had a conversation with him and I said, you know, I'm just not sure if this is really what I want to do because I was about to go to law school. Okay. And I said, I'm dyslexic. How am I going to do the reading mm. that is required? And, you know, there was no apps back then that can read for you, which yeah. I just recently discovered and am like, oh, my God, this is so good. Um, so he said to me, well, all you ever talk about is acting and how much you miss it. So I can support you. Why don't you find a school, go back to train in L.A. in Hollywood? And because um, I was living in Orange County at okay. the time. And. I was like, okay. So my mom and I, we went forth. We went to Hollywood and we interviewed all different schools. And I started training and I've had some pretty, pretty awesome training. How old were you at that time? 24. 24. Yes. You're getting back into the industry. Who did you train with? Uh, I, I became a method actor. Oh. I trained at Strasburg. Wow. The famed and, Lee Strasberg. Uh, yes, the, fam the famed Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. Unfortunately, he was not alive when I got there. And I just thought, you know, I, I had never had any training. I had already been on the sets for years, but I had not had any training. And even in high school, I chose orchestra. Okay. And I was a cheerleader, actually a song leader. But, um, yeah. So no training until then. I didn't do any theater in high school or anything. And so I thought, let's go full on. I mean, Marilyn Monroe. I mean, the names that had studied with Strasburg and, mm -hmm. and the work. And I was like, I'm going there. Mm. So it was really good. While you're training, getting this, you grew up on set. And suddenly you're like, I'm taking this full on. I am dedicating myself not just to be an actor. I mean, you go to Strasbourg and learn, you become more of a thespian, in my opinion. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I uh, My first coach was Mark Marnot, and he, he had me sit knee to knee with him while everyone in the room, in this black room big room and all the walls were painted black and then you're in these really uncomfortable chairs and you're doing relaxation and you're making noises and he's like come here and he puts knee to knee with me and he basically says to me if you don't wake up in the morning uh thinking about being an actor if you don't go to bed at night and that's what's on your mind and it it is constantly gnawing at you that this is what you must do then get the f out of my ha out of my class, mm. and I, that 
that's how I was. Yeah. I did. I always thought about it. It was always in the back of my mind. I had to put it back because of the people pleasing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a big thing nowadays or not, but it was back then for I, I, me. I think everyone has, yeah. a, a, to a degree, people-pleasing, particularly when parents. it's your parents. Yes. You know, Your parents want you to do. Yeah. Look, when I told my parents that I did not want to get into a career of politics and things, they were highly upset. But I also reminded them, it's not the kid you raised to go kind of the standard path. We've worked it out over the years, and now everybody is fine. Good. But, you know, so... When you're when you're when you're doing this work, what were some of the first gigs you got after you went through all your training? I worked in a improv group called the Plain Rap Players, hmm. which improvisation, yeah, that is golden. Yes, I mean any actor that could be listening to this, get yourself some improv uh, training because that is always going to be handy dandy in everything that you do. Because there's so many times, even when you walk on a set, that you, you didn't see that one coming, mm-hmm. and so you're going to have to bend and curve. Um, so plain rap players. Then I started working in a production called Dial in Murder Mysteries. I was the mistress of murder. These were live dinner shows all around Southern California, up the West Coast, Vegas. And so uh, that was kind of networking, too, because I was meeting other actors because in Los Angeles, it is not easy to get an agent. No, it's not. Uh, Los Angeles, Hollywood is, they may as well just call the city Catch-22 because it is so hard to make your way into the industry. And when they say it's who you know, it's who you know. So you go from L.A., you eventually came to Nashville. When did you first come here? I left Seal Beach with my truck and car in tow, two dogs and a rabbit, on January 1st, 1992. 92. Arrived four days later. Like, we, we got here at about 8 o'clock on the third day. Okay. And then, basically, we went to a hotel. I couldn't get into my little house yet. And I've been here ever since. I wasn't planning to be here this long. So what were your impressions of Nashville when you first got here? And what got you to stay? The people. Mm. The friendliness. No traffic. Mm-hmm. Compared to L.A., yes. That was a big one. Uh-huh. The terrain. Mm. The hills, the trees, the clean air. Not the mosquitoes or the chiggers. Because <laughs> that was like, oh, getting here. I didn't know about the chiggers. Um, but staying here, the quality of life is is just, there's nothing like it from, what I, from where I've lived. Mm. In L.A., I lived a little stint in upstate New York, which was really nice for a short time. But predominantly, I'm from L.A. Was it difficult for you to find acting work out here when you got arri- when you arrived? I didn't come here as an actor. I came here as a Southern country rock artist. So I had kind of thought that my acting would be set aside mm. for five years. And then I would turn around and go back to L.A. I was going to nurture my, I wanted, I came here to get the Nashville sound in okay. my vocals. Okay. And uh, to just immerse myself in the music scene, not even knowing that the union was here on Music Row. Mm. 
So it was a really nice surprise. And then uh, my best friend moved here six months later, and then she discovered the film community. And then that was when the ball really got rolling for me getting involved. So you're, you're, you're a triple threat. You got the acting, singing, and dancing down. That's classic right yeah, there. Yeah, I have a series right now. It's not, um, I actually, well, I shouldn't say that because we have to be really careful what we promote, especially while we're on strike. Mm-hmm. I understand. So. I understand. Now, before we go to break, I just want to ask you, you've talked, you mentioned the strike and you've kind of been about unionization and protections for actors. You founded the Actors Alliance for the Nashville Film and Video Association. What did you see here at that point in time with the industry in Nashville? What did you find was missing that led you to really create this organization that represents actors in the region? Uh, what's missing is the understanding of what a union does and that right to work does not mean right to work. It means right to work for less. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that I moved to a state that had legislation. I, I'd never heard of it. And that's probably, I know we'll probably get to this, but that's probably one of the reasons why I'm on the negotiating committee is because I understand this, this big block wall that we face. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Carla Cristina Contreras, the new president of SAG-AFTRA Local, to talk about what the union does for actors and what the negotiations with the studios have been like. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. My guest is Carla Cristina Contreras, the new president of SAG After Local. She's been a resident of Nashville for a long time, and she's been an integral part of union representation for local actors. Now, before the break, we talked about her career in entertainment. Now, let's dig a little deeper in what the recent SAG After strike has been like. Carla Cristina Contreras, again, thank you for being here on This Is Nashville. I'm here, and I'm loving it. Thank this you is, so much th for having me. This is really wonderful to talk with you. So let's take it back to the beginning of all this with the strike. You're on the National Negotiating Committee. What's your role there? I'm what is called a bullpen alternate. There are 10 of us uh, that are bullpen alternates from across the country. I was surprised that I was invited to go to Los Angeles. I thought I would just sit back and be on Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, but for some reason, I think... I'm going to assume it was Fran Drescher because Fran chose and vetted every person that was on, that is on the committee. So she had historical detail on us, whether we're working the contracts. Uh, and I've forgotten your question. <laughs> Just, you, 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 you totally answered it. You gave us your role there. So, so you're in the room with big names, Fran Drescher, who's the president of SAG-AFTRA, mm -hmm. international or national? She is our national president. Okay. There are 25 locals across the country. L.A. is a local. New York is a local. And then within the country, there's 23 other Right. locals. And so I am one of seven members on the negotiating committee that are from locals within the country. Okay. 
So you, you have these behemoths in Los Angeles and New York local chapters and also big names like Fran Drescher and others. Do you feel like you have a chance to make your voice heard coming from this local and Ab- this market? Absolutely. Fran Drescher opened the microphones to all of us. Mm. I I do not have a vote, but I have a voice and I can I can express my point of view and it is heard. Is Fran Drescher's approach different from past presidents of SAG-AFTRA? Uh, I would say yes, because I've been around the union for 30 years. I would say that she has brought, and I'm going to get emotional, she has brought unity mm. in a way that I have not seen it in, uh, in our union for many years. What has she done? She just basically has it. She's like a mama bear. She's she's our, as Lisa Ann Walter said today at our meeting, she's like our mother Jones. She she really has brought us together and she keeps us on track. And she she has just really made sure that. It's like we're her children and she's keeping us in line in a sense. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. It It's actually a very beautiful thing. And I came into the negotiating committee knowing of a lot of the people, not just the celebrities that, that because of the national board and because of my 30 years of service, they were faces and voices that I had heard through convention or national board meetings and things that I got to go to prior to being president now take me to talk to me about the initial round of negotiations what were those meetings like um you know i never did pinch myself even though i felt like i should have because it was it was a bit surreal because it was my first negotiation and I can give you my point of view of it. And I sat myself in the room. It looked like the room was going to, like the front of the room was going to be in one direction. And then I sat myself at this one location so that I could get up and down easily because it was kind of crowded. And then it turned out to be the back of the room. And where I sat myself, I could see every person and every reaction. Not their faces, the back of them. Okay. And then I completely faced whoever was at it was a di- it was kind of a dais, but it wasn't raised. And then that was whoever was running the meeting, whether it was Fran or whether it was a vice chair. And then Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, our chief negotiator and our exe- our national executive director. I could I looked them straight in the eye, and I and I was there. Really, was no better place to sit. So you have this view, yeah, of everything happening in this room. This very very impactful and important initial set of meetings. What's the wildest thing that happened in that room that you can tell us? Well, um, wow, wild. It was pretty good. I mean, it was very, we were in there anywhere from eight to 12 hours uh, a day. And I'm going to say it was compelling. I was on the edge of my seat. I was never bored. I don't think I ever yawned the whole time I was there, whether I got good sleep the night before or not. Wild, I don't know that 
I mean, one of the wildest things was probably uh, when Jolie Fisher brought in this. It was a gift to us from her. She brought in a beautiful spread of of different kinds of candy. Okay. So I mean, there's not there's not really any gossip because, like I'm saying, the unity in that room was unprecedented. Yeah. And I can't I can't really pinpoint anything that I can talk about. But there's when you ask that question, there wasn't like something that immediately popped. I understand. You know, I imagine like again talking about how important the unity is. It, you're dealing with the AMPTP, the studios. You all have to be unified in to get what you're asking for. What did you have direct interactions with any representatives from the AMPTP? I did. What were those like? It was in the ladies' room. Oh. Yeah. She asked if we were having fun in our room. That doesn't sound like a f- innocent question. I mean, we were both washing our hands, uh-huh. right? And uh, I had pretty much sat sort of directly across from her, but behind the main the main table of our representatives. Um, and I thought, I kind of stood up and I said, well, with with who we are, yeah, we're having fun. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we're actors. We make fun wherever we go. Did At what point during this process did you realize that, hey, we're going to have to go on strike? Well... It was especially clear when I spent four or five days in my hotel room. We we didn't know it was going to last that long. We would get an email toward the end of the day that would say the AMPTP is still working on their next, what they're going to push across the table, their proposal. And so we wouldn't find out till like five, seven, eight. 10 o'clock at night. Mm. And so I didn't really go out and do anything. And then the next day we'd be off and then again it would happen. They're not ready. And then again it would happen. They're not ready. And then again it would happen. They're not ready. And so we were pushing toward July 12th, which was at midnight would be the end of, we had given them a 12-day extension. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty clear to me personally that we were going to have to go on strike. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour with Carla Cristina Contreras, the new president of SAG After Local, about the national strike and how it's impacting the Nashville acting community. You can tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. So you give them that 12 day extension. Clock strikes midnight. You're on strike. Here we are in October. Did you think that the strike would last this long? I think that it could possibly last this long or longer. We were we were prepared. A lot of what'd you do to prepare for that? Well, uh, we have a strike. I'm not sure what the staff is called. Um, there were already organization organizational things being done by staff. I mean, this was unprecedented. Mm-hmm. A strike is, uh, you know, we hadn't struck since 1980, but. We hadn't struck like this since 1960, Mm. so it had been 63 years. But we had staff ready to go. Um, We had already been on the strike line with the writers, so we were kind of warmed up. Yeah. Um, And so 
the day that we we went before the press in in our big it's called the Cagney room it's our our uh, national boardroom and the press was all in there again wow another um historical event with our president Fran Drescher and the way she handled the press from her heart and just spoke from what she truly felt uh, was so powerful. And we didn't want to strike. We did not want to strike. You felt you had no choice. We had no choice. You mentioned that you were already standing with the writers in solidarity with them. So you would say that the writers being on strike impacted this decision for SAG to go on strike as well? No, I would not say that because the writers are very, their contracts and everything are very separate from ours. We support our sister union. We support our writers. We cannot do our work without writers. Mm -hmm. We need those words. And so we support them. But their contract and our contracts, completely different animals. So when they got their deal last week, I imagine the National Committee jumped back into action. Say, hey, the writers were able to work something out with AMPTP. Now the studios may be more inclined to come back to the table and talk with us. Well, we were never not in action. Okay. Our committee kept working behind the scenes. So there, there, I actually co-chair the social media subcommittee. We have a subcommittee that is run, um, that's on communication. So all the, you know, whatever is said to the membership was drafted by our members that were in the subcommittee. And then there were a lot of us who would put our two cents in here and there. Um, and then we have one other subcommittee. Oh, yeah, we have casting, the subcommittee. Okay. So... Yeah, our work never has shut down at all. In fact, we were doing uh, one to two Zoom calls a week, uh, getting updates and then updates on what was happening out on the strike line. Right now we're dealing, we want to make sure that our membership is dealing with their mental health during a strike. Okay, so I do want to ask you about that. As listeners know, I've got a couple siblings who are in, who are thespians and actresses. My my oldest sister, she felt, she said this about her peers as well, the, that actors feel incredibly disrespected by the studios with how they've been treated, with what the studios were proposing in this round of negotiation. You're talking about making sure that members' mental health is okay because it's, this is, the, the, not only is it a job and a profession, but this is a craft that you all have trained very, very hard for, in most cases over the course of a lifetime. A lot of us, when we think of actors, we think of the people who hit the red carpet. We don't think right. of the regular working actors who may have one or two lines in two or three TV shows per year. Right. And all of the struggle. And another thing I, you know, it's it's a profession full of rejection. <laughs> you, you, you're rejected all the time. You know, it's like a baseball, a good baseball player, three out of t- ten times, you're a great baseball player if you can get a hit. Well, you're lucky as an actor one out of 10 times to just get cast in something. Absolutely. What's up with that mental health element and what you all are going through with this strike? So what what we're hearing is that a lot of the, you know, I go through and I look at all the photographs. I, I invite uh, the listeners 
to go to the SAG-AFTRA Instagram page and look at the photographs of everything that's happening across the country. Mm. It is not just Los Angeles. It is not just New York. It is not just Chicago. It's Florida. It's Missouri. It's New England. It's D.C. It's Arizona. It's Colorado. It's New Mexico. And you will see one of the things that struck me was that the actors were smiling Mm. so much because they were finally feeling like they are seen and heard. And yes, the rejection I mean, it, it it just comes with it. it. I don't know. It's you really have to have a thick skin. Um, but what we're hearing from the strike line is that the actors, they don't they're not feeling purposeful. And we're like, no, 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 you are doing exactly what you need to do so that we can we're doing this with you and for you. The strike is all a part of it. And, you know, the Nashville actors, we have no place to strike here. We can only rally so because we have no AMPTP productions or, or anything. You know, there's no offices here. There's, no, there's nothing where we can legally, because there's a lot of laws that we have to uh, contend with as far as labor laws and what can happen with strike. Strike is a very particular thing that occurs. Mm, I understand. Let's take one last quick break. When we come back, we'll learn how the strike is impacting the film and television industry in Nashville and what the future looks like for production in Music City from our guest, Carla Cristina Contreras. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ecolona, and this is Nashville. SAG and AFTRA has been on strike since July 14th. We're coming up on three full months of no acting. My guest is Carla Cristina Contreras. She is the new president of SAG-AFTRA Local. I got to ask you, you know, Carla Cristina, that's got to be pretty hard for you personally to be out of work like this or prohibited from even attempting to find work. Well, for me... I've been busy because I'm on the negotiating committee. I've had purpose uh, and just <laughs> it, it's been a much bigger um, commitment than I had ever thought it would be when I said yes. Um, because I'm a bullpen alternate, I didn't expect to actually get in on the action per se. Um, so as far as work goes, of course, all of the auditions shut down. They st- and they started to shut down before we even went to the table. The minute that the writers went on, boom, we, we you know, they went on strike, no auditions. Um, there were a few here and there. Commercials, commercials are still going. Those are going. Broadcasting is going. You know, we have many other contracts that are still working. This is just TV and theatrical. But yes, um, everybody was shutting down. And here's the thing is that. We as actors, because of the rejection and because of it's so hard for us to land something meaningful that will actually sustain us, one of our one of our negotiating team members said, "We've been taught how to starve." Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that one hit me pretty hard. Yeah, it hit me that that's that's beautiful and incredibly sad simultaneously. 
And that's the model. The model of our industry is, you know, what was the joke when I was living in L.A. was if you want, you know, to talk to an actor, waiter, you know, you come to Nashville and they're like, you want to talk to a songwriter, waiter, you know, we as creatives have the model, the way the model has been built, we have always had to have a side gig. So you turn to your side gig, but then there are some who maybe the side gig isn't happening. I mean, our economy, there's a lot (laughs) A lot of ups and downs right now. So I'm grateful to my husband who has said once I got on the negotiating committee and then uh, I'm, you know, the incoming president, I was vice president, but had been on the board, like I said, for 30 years. I called our past president, Mike Montgomery, just yesterday. And I said, in your, because he was president for a long time, SAG Legacy and then SAG-AFTRA, And I said, in all your time, did you ever have your phone and your email and your text just ringing off the hook that this person wants to talk to you and this person? And he's like, no. Mm. He's like, you walked into a historical event. But he prepared me and so did my 30 years. Yes. Yes, they have pretty well, I'd say. You know, you, you mentioned that work was slowing down here in Nashville before the strike happened. You've been here for a long time and you've seen the industry grow. Talk to me about these fluctuations of theatrical and television work here in town. You were on the show Nashville while it was in town. Show's been out for a while. There's been nothing central to come to this, to our region. What's up with that? Yeah, I actually developed a situation comedy that I've been shopping and it is a Nashville show. Okay. And that has been a real uphill experience. I got, we got really, really close and then we didn't. That's Mm. the game. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the hardest part that we deal with is the money because we have to make Tennessee attractive from a financial standpoint. And every couple of years, we try to get legislation passed. We as a union support, we're, we're active in helping to get tax incentives or whatever you want to call them. I'm not sure what the current thing is called. But Kentucky, which is a part of our local, Kentucky and Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Kentucky has some amazing tax incentives. I know that Nashville or Tennessee has new stuff that I'm not completely um, in understanding with. But that's the bottom line. That's what it's about now. I mean, that's what we're dealing with, with the the big AMPTP. They're worried about their stockholders instead of the creatives that are basically, they're earning their back, Mm. off our backs. Mm. How do you feel about artificial intelligence being used in the creation of television and film? Um, No. Mm. Hell to the no, if I can say that. Yeah. I, you know, I would, I personally would, I mean, I get it. I get how it can enhance if something happens to a performer and the production isn't finished yet. I can see how that enhancement could be used to finish and it has been used that way. But you can't replace us. Who are you going to put on the red carpet? Mm-hmm. Who yeah. are you, who, who's going to promote for you during the pandemic 
Who did everybody turn to? Who did everybody watch? Who, who, what did everyone submerge themselves in? Our faces, our performances. AI, that's one that we, the, that's going to be really interesting where this goes. That's an interesting negotiating yeah, point. And, and, I'm sure you can't really tell us details of what you well, are planning. Well, I don't, I don't at this time know the details. Mm -hmm. And um, someone had asked me about AI and I said, I'll pay more attention to that because it's, it, yeah, that one is, uh, when I get back to the negotiations, definitely I, I'm, that is probably number one to see where we go with that. You know, talking with you about the importance of actors, we did all turn to actors in television shows and movies, even animated shows during the pandemic. We were kind of all in some sort of an existential crisis during the pandemic. You know, there's this over, you know, Nashville is full of what's called journeyman actors. Yes. Tell, talk to us about what that means. I'm a journeyman actor. You don't know my face. I work. I work contracts. I work with big names, but you don't know who I am because I might just have one word that I get to say in a major feature film, but that character was needed. Mm. We're the journeymans. We're the ones that fill it all in. We, you know, you've got your celebrity, you've got your leads, you've got, but now there's background actors and then there's day players and there's featured and there, I mean, think about your own life and how everything happens around you. Yeah. So to fill that in and to make it real and to make it compelling, you need the journeyman. It can't happen without us. Journeyman actors, would you say make up a majority of the folks who are part of SAG? Absolutely. And, you know, there are some statistics that 86% of the journeyman of our membership haven't made their minimums to get their health insurance. That, that minimum is twenty six thousand dollars. Twenty six thousand, I believe, four hundred and seventy dollars. So eighty six percent of the members of SAG AFTRA, most likely, referring to what you said earlier, have a side gig or two, just to make it. Yeah, I worked four jobs when I first moved here. Four jobs. Wow. That's a, so. How much money are are local actors typically making? I, you know, I don't really know the answer to that, but one of the things that really uh, kind of back pets my, the hair on my neck is when someone says that we're hobbyists, mm. that because, you know, they'll say, well, that 86%, they're just, they're hobbyists. That's not true. It's got to feel insulting. It's very insulting. And... Those hobbyists are training. Those hobbyists are working two, three jobs. They have their children. They're putting food on the table. And this thing that they must do, that they're, they're, they, they're constantly bettering themselves. Um, <laughs> I found out recently that actors are called meat, meat puppets Whoa. on set. Hmm. And I thought, meat puppet. And then it reminded me that because my dad sometimes would come home and he would call them furniture. 
And then the front, yeah, let's move the furniture in. And so now I'm kidding around with some of the crew people. I'm like, hey, this meat puppet over here wants to, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like, I see you. I see. But it's weird because for some reason they don't think that actors are smart, that we're not educated, that we we don't have depth. On the contrary. Yeah. If there's anything wild that I saw in that negotiating room was depth of intelligence. That's interesting that there's this disrespect of actors and this dishonor shed upon this craft that most people, I think, don't have the courage to even attempt to do. Yet, a lot of people want to be stars on the red carpet. A lot of people want to be lauded at the Oscars. That's an interesting little dichotomy right there. Oh, yeah. The minute a camera shows up, boy, you really see you really see everything. Mm-hmm. You see what's, what's a, you know, and being an actor... And of course, my father being a grip, he always taught me how to cheat things. And then different big names that I've worked with would take me under their umbrella and they would show me how they cheated things and to make sure that you're in and make friends with the DP and do this and do this. And, you know, so it's a strategic thing. Yeah. So this strike, hopefully, will come to an end, hopefully sooner than later. What do you see the process of getting back to work in Nashville being like? Well, the interim agreement allows for production to be happening now. Okay. So our interim agreement is everything that we're asking for. And independent productions that are not associated with the AMPTP have said, wow, we don't think you're asking for too much. We don't have a problem with this. And over 1,000, I know the last count was 1,400. That was like... A week or so ago, I can't even imagine how many have been applied for now. And I understand that there is a film, I think it's called On Fire, that is uh, an AMPT, excuse me, it's an interim agreement movie that's going to 500 theaters. So we're really excited to support uh, the industry that has gotten behind us by using our interim agreements. What can people in town who aren't necessarily inter- in, in, in the entertainment business, what can they do to support? What can they do to kind of make Nashville a little bit more of a, an epicenter? Um, it's, politi- it's political. Mm-hmm. We need more, more money. If you look at the statistics of what the show Nashville did for the state of Tennessee, I mean, look at the tourism, what it looks like now yeah. after the show Nashville. It did not look like that. And now we have traffic, and I moved here for no traffic. <laughs> it's true. We do. But you got to have to admit, it, this traffic is kind of light traffic compared to, I lived in L.A. for a long time. You're from there. Compared oh, sure. To that, it's light. Sure. It, it's a lot. It's definitely lighter, but it's so funny how many people from California, my best friend from my, uh, being 11 years old on, she just moved here to Murfreesboro and she's in, completely in love with it and is like, no traffic. And I'm like, yeah, there is. <laughs> there is. A little bit. Well, <laughs> let me ask you this. You know, it's a real big job to represent the city, but the journeyman actors as well who are here. You've been doing this for 30 years. You've been in these leadership positions. You've, your entire life has been about this industry. What does that feel like? At this point in time in your life and your career, here you are during this very monumental and huge strike, being a part of the National Committee, but also being looked at as this leader here in the local area. It's, um, it's, it's heavy because 
even though I'm a bullpen alternate, as I said, my voice is heard. We are not finished yet. We have been thanked. I get emails, texts in person. I wear my shirt. I'm here today. I have my shirt on, um, my SAG-AFTRA emblem. I wear it loud and proud. It's amazing how the public is supporting us and saying we're on your side. We're on the creative side. Um, it makes me emotional to think of this responsibility that we as the negotiators have. And as we walk next week to get back into negotiations officially on Monday morning, you know, our goal is, is to get what's in the interim agreement. And it could happen real fast that way. <laughs> but it is a it is a huge um, kind of I, w- I don't want to say that I'm numb because I'm not numb. I just am I feel like I'm I'm just on a mission and the mission will be completed. It will be completed. We don't know when, but at some point it will. Carlos, Carla Cristina Contreras, I want to thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for this conversation. I really appreciate it. I am honored. Thank you. Carla Cristina Contreras is the new president of SAG AFTRA Local, and she is a bullpen alternate on the SAG AFTRA National Committee. Thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced and directed by Elizabeth Burton. Laura Boach is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. You can tweet us at This Is Nashville or find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.